Hey, it's PF, and doing another Ira Glass-like introduction, and that can only mean one thing. Yes, uh, got back from vacation, but still a little behind on getting caught up to my two main jobs. And again, I have eliminated all jobs that I've had except for two, and yet I'm still busier than ever, which is strange. I guess I'm just devoting more time to those jobs now, so it's strange. But anyway, back from vacation. Last week we did an encore presentation of the interview with Tom Bailey, and I said we might do the uh, Major interview again. And I think we should because I didn't realize how long ago this was. This is episode 161, so it's below the 300 cutoff, certainly, if you're listening in iTunes or anything like that. I guess it's still available through other pod-catching places, devices, platforms, etc. But if not, it's a great, great interview with Midyear of Ultravox. Couldn't have been nicer. Uh, shout out to Lori Majewski. She is the author of Mad World, an oral history of new wave artists and songs that define the 1980s. Recommended book, by the way. They're supposed to be working on a volume two. Uh, I'll have to see if that was ever, uh, that ever came to fruition, uh, along with her her um, co-author, Jonathan Bernstein, who is also a guest on the show. Lori has not been a guest on the show. Actually, maybe she get her on the show as well. In any case, I thank Lori because she's the one that put me in touch with Midge's publicist, and that's how we got him on the show. Encore presentation of episode 161, Midjour, uh, continuing along with our history of synth pop. And then next week, we'll pick up the history of synth pop. And uh, until then, enjoy this episode featuring Midjour of Ultravox. On the other side of this, we'll have a brand new song of the week. It's a very, very big one from a very, very important uh, band in PF tape recorder lore. Stay tuned and find out who that is. Here's Midjour, episode 161. Hi, this is Andy McCluskey from Orchestral Maneuvers of the Dark, and you're listening to PF's Tape Recorder. Hello there, I'm PF, this is my tape recorder. Coming up, we cover a lot of ground with Midjour of Ultravox. So I bought a synthesizer for the rich kids and half the band hated it, half the band loved it and the band, half the band who loved it went off and, and said uh, you know, wouldn't it be great working with all our favourite musicians uh, and we put together a collective called Visage. We'll hear more from Midge in just a bit. Midge, of course, out on the road as part of the Retro Futura Tour with Tom Bailey of Thompson Twins, Howard Jones, Katrina and the Waves, and China Crisis coming to a town near you. We'll have more details on that later. We have another episode of Crime Song Investigation featuring two separate cases. But first, as always, fake news. And now, fake news with me. A teenage boy lived inside a Texas Walmart store for days without anyone noticing. The 14-year-old boy slept in a 24-hour Walmart and Corsicana, Texas for several days, CBS Dallas reports. He built two campsites for sleeping in the store, one behind boxes of strollers and the other behind paper towels and toilet paper. After the boy was removed, several employees asked about subletting the spaces. It's nicer than the place I have now, said one cashier. Many students went back to school this week to find their favorite snacks gone from the vending machines, and they're pointing the blame at the First Lady via Twitter. New federal standards backed by Michelle Obama limit the products that can be sold in school vending machines. It aims to offer more healthy snacks under 200 calories and lower sodium in the effort to fight the childhood obesity epidemic. Many of the tweets contained typos, not because the students were poorly educated, but because they had a hard time tweeting with their stubby little fingers. 
It's been 40 years since George Takei and William Shatner first worked together on the set of the Starship Enterprise, but the two feuding Star Trek stars still have plenty to say about their time on one of sci-fi's most popular series. Takei has said before that Shatner is self-centered and difficult to work with, but now the 77-year-old social media savvy celebrity elaborates on his beef with this polarizing co-star. We are still a family, he tells Oprah Winfrey, and insists he wasn't the only member of the cast put off by Shatner. We all had problems with Bill on set, Takei says. The reason why? Ego. And after serving with Captain Kirk, Mr. Sulu was later under the command of Captain Obvious. Shatner, by the way, later copped the fact that they all hated him uh, in his autobiography in the early 90s. And, and the funny thing was, the autobiography opens with him discovering that everybody except Nimoy hated him. <laughs> so pick that up if you can find it. It's hilarious. While many Americans struggle to understand the motivation behind frequent anti-gay rhetoric for lobbyist Jonathan Sainz, it may be simply because his ex-wife left him to be with another woman. As Sainz took over as president of Texas Valleys in 2012, court documents revealed he was in the process of divorcing his wife, who left him to be with a woman. Sainz, who had a prior reputation as a by-the-book social conservative, has since built Texas Valleys into the face of legislative homophobia in Texas, taking a grocery list of actions against the Lone Star State's LGBT community. So you see, gay marriage is a threat to traditional marriage, especially if you're a homophobic douchebag. A Georgia father was arrested after police say he put his whiskey bottle in the car seat instead of his son. Henry County Police responded on Saturday to a 911 call about a man sitting slumped behind the wheel of his car at a traffic light. The light had changed several times, but the car hadn't moved. When another driver saw a man asleep behind the wheel and a little boy in the front seat, he called police. Incidentally, in Georgia, a bottle of whiskey can't ride in the front seat until it's 12 years of age. And finally, Representative Lee Terry of Nebraska is fighting pressure to agree to a pay cut for members of Congress instead of complaining that the $174,000 annual salary was already frozen. On Monday, Terry's Democratic challenger, State Senator Brad Ashford, proposed that the congressional salaries be cut 10% and promised to do so unilaterally if elected. Terry, in response, took umbrage to the notion that congressmen are overpaid. What he's not telling you is that Congress hasn't had a cost of living increase since 2008, when I led the charge for a freeze, Terry told KMTV. Members of Congress last voted for a raise of $4,700 in 2009, and Terry also pointed out that for his last two years in Congress, he's lived in a Walmart. And that's been Fake News with me. Okay, well, we haven't done one of these in a while, and, and Fangirl's been dying to do one. Say, <laughs> say hey oh Fangirl. hey I thought this would be good, too, because the interview is with Midjure, of course, from Ultravox, so we thought we'd keep the dumb bit uh, musical, and uh, we'd kind of do a historic uh, crime song investigation. <laughs> so we have two for you here, but uh, picture, if you will, uh, a crime scene, or a, a, a crime song, if you will, and I uh, whip off the glasses and say, looks like Sublime went too far trying to make ends meet. Okay, so we've got uh, first up on the docket, we have uh, Sublime from Los Angeles. And you know what's funny about this one is I have never heard anybody else point this out except for Fangirl, independently <laughs> of me, who one day told me, hey, did you ever notice that Sublime song sounds just like Lady Madonna? <laughs> so, um, and, uh, so I guess you notice this after getting into your Beatles phase. Oh, yeah, I had a really intense Beatles phase. <laughs> yes, a lot of people do. It's not unnatural. Um, oh, yeah. 
Yeah, and uh, I guess um, I don't know why no one's ever pointed this out, but uh, well, let's it's let's so obvious. Well, let's listen to this first. First up, first up, we'll give it a little blast of Sublime. And now the plaintiffs in the case. So get the cuffs, obviously, right? <laughs> True. Yeah. So I guess I don't. Maybe the only reason people didn't uh, make a big stink about that is because the the one dude off of Sublime passed away, and maybe people felt it'd be kind of a dicky thing to point out. Yeah. And I don't, you know, and then the Beatles don't need the money, so it's <laughs> you know. All right. So now we go to our our next case. This is what I noticed a long time ago, and I guess I'm not the only one that has actually noticed this, but. Um, we go to the reggae song Buffalo Soldier, and if you have a uh, an alternative station in town like we do, this is one of the only reggae songs they know. That is painfully true. Yes, and so we have, um, this is, uh, I'll give you a little blast of Buffalo Soldier by Bob Marley, and then uh, we'll hear from the plaintiffs. And now from the plaintiffs we have... I, I wasn't really sure what I was listening to before, and then that part came on, I just inadvertently blurred out, what the hell? Because, like, <laughs> that is the uh, banana... Sp- so that's the banana splits. It's That's horrible. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> And uh, I looked into this, and um, okay, I thought, well, maybe I didn't know how long, how old Buffalo Soldier was because Bob Marley passed away in 1980, and I figured oh, it must be one of his older songs. But it was recorded in 1980, right before his death, and then released posthumously in 1983 on the Confrontation album. And the Banana Splits theme was written in 1968 for the TV show. And uh, something called Gelf Magazine, which I've never heard of, uh, also pointed out that there was a similarity to it. And uh, one, they asked a music professor, and he said, well, the, it's, a, it's such a simple structure, it's so similar. I'm like, baloney. <laughs> this other dude that uh, Bob Marley wrote the song with, perhaps, uh, his name is King uh, Sporty or something like that here. Uh, yeah, King Sporty, uh, Noel King Sporty Williams. Maybe he was the one that kind of subconsciously uh, lifted the Banana Splits theme uh, and, and plugged it there into... Vanilla Ice has another album? Yeah, he, he, he covered this too, <laughs> by the way. Yeah. Back. So, uh, and uh, speaking <laughs> of, too. yeah, and, and speaking of, um, this Gulf magazine, they uh, also point out that the Beach Boys uh, plagiarized Chuck Berry's little uh, "Sweet Little Sixteen for "Surfing USA," which is actually only partly true. Um, they did use the melody for it, but uh, and originally when the song was released, Brian Wilson was the only songwriter, but that was quickly corrected, and the song was always published by Chuck Berry's publishing company, Arc Music, and then uh, in 1966, uh, they just gave him the copyright to the whole song, including Brian's lyrics. So whenever Surfing USA is played, it's actually Chuck Berry that makes the money and not the Beach Boys, unless it's their version being played, then they make a couple of cents too. But um, And according to Wikipedia, Carl Wilson said that they ran into Chuck Berry in Denmark a couple years later, and he was fine with it. And uh, as 
as I would like to point out, he was probably very happy with all that mailbox money he's getting. Because uh, his, his song went to number two, and the Beach Boy song went to number one. So uh, Chuck Berry not unhappy there with the, uh, the, the money from that. Okay, so that's Crime Song Investigation uh, for this week. Two pretty open and shut cases. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And, uh, boy, pick up the Banner Splits theme, kids. That's, like, Spin Magazine called that one of the greatest pop songs ever, and they are not wrong. <laughs> That is such a great tune. That'll right. make you want a banana split. There you, okay, there you go. Well, so that's me right now. I'm going to go make one. All right, sounds good. All right, well, uh, all right, thanks, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll have another case for you soon. Hey gang, if you're in Cleveland or Northeast Ohio or in driving distance thereof, listen up. We have some exciting news for you. We have a chance for you to win two pair of tickets to the Retro Futura show that's on Monday, August 25th in Cleveland at the Performing Arts Center at Masonic Hall, right there just outside of downtown Cleveland. Uh, we're doing this in conjunction with the venue to help promote the show. Uh, Home Shirts Cleveland, our t-shirt company, uh, and PF's tape recorder uh, will be participating. Uh, we're going to have a Twitter party on Wednesday, August 20th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. We're going to use the hashtag RetroCLV. So look for that, and we're going to be tweeting some fun stuff about 80s new wave music, including our upcoming guest, Midjour, uh, Thompson Twins, uh, Tom Baylor, of course, will be performing. Howard Jones, China Crisis, Katrina and the Waves. So uh, so do that, and you'll win uh, possibly win some tickets to the show, as well as t-shirts from us, because with each uh, pair of tickets, we're giving away some t-shirts. So it's a total of two pair of tickets, four shirts. Uh, you can do the math. So don't forget, uh, tell your friends if you're not in Cleveland but know somebody who is that you think would like to see the show, uh, go ahead and tell them about it, and tell them to join us on our Twitter party. That is Wednesday, August 20th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, hashtag Retro Cleveland. Now, on to the interview with Midjour. Midjure is perhaps one of the most significant figures in the history of new wave music, indeed pop music as a whole. As a member of Visage, Ultravox, and the co-writer of Band-Aid's Do They Know It's Christmas, he has been a strong force in music throughout the years. Here now is our interview with Midjure. Joining us on PF's Tape Recorder Band, this is huge. It's Midge Yur from Ultravox. Midge, how you doing? I'm doing incredibly well, Patrick. Um, first, I got some business out of the way here. Uh, a buddy of mine is actually from uh, a village in Scotland that is uh, it's north uh, west of Glasgow and northeast of Edinburgh. 
and uh, he wanted me to say hi <laughs> as a fellow Scotsman. And, hey! Uh, yeah, and uh, we were chatting. Um, uh, on He was uh, on an episode a couple of weeks back because I do a little a special edition occasionally called Your Favorite Band, and his favorite band is The Alarm uh, from Wales, uh, oddly. But um, And we were talking about albums he's liked recently, and one was your album Breathe, and that reminds him of his son because it was the album they played a lot when they first brought him home from the hospital. So. Oh wow! Oh, fantastic! Oh, yeah. that's, see, it's funny when you write a piece of music that uh, that someone uh, uses in a major moment in their lives, like you know the birth of your son or whatever, and it's just it totally blows me away that people have something of mine that, that connects to something huge like that. Well, I've been on a big Ultravox kick lately because um, just randomly on the shuffle, the twelve-inch extended version of One Small Day came up a couple of weeks ago. So I've been listening to that a lot again, and then the whole Lament album uh, takes me right back to 1984, uh, my first year of college. I was listening to that album a lot, and then Greatest Hits followed right up after that with uh, Love's Great Adventure. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, man, some great, some great memories there. Ah, it's funny. It's yeah. Well, it's it's what music should do. It should take you back to you know what you were doing, who you were hanging out with, you know, all of that stuff. It's great. Now, when you started uh, in music, I guess um, you were kind of one of the guys who started. You started really just before punk. And kind of adapted in there right along with people like Sting and you know, people like that who kind of like saw an opportunity, uh, even though you were you know two or three years older than maybe some of the young people that were younger people that were doing it. Is that kind of how things happened? Uh, not really. Uh, it was it was slightly different for me. I started. Uh, I suppose my my musical life started uh, uh, with a band called Slick, which were a kind of bassity rollers type band. Oh, that's we, right. Yeah. You know, we we, uh, we you know we, we made music that was written by uh, the same guys who wrote the bassity rollers stuff and produced by them. And and uh, if truth be told, I think a first hit record was actually played by the same guys who played <laughs> bassity rollers. Things. Okay. So, so it was a kind of short-lived thing, uh, you know. It was it was something that, coming from Glasgow in Scotland, there was no musical outlet really. Uh, you know, no independent labels, no record companies, uh, you know, no recording facilities. So you you took kind of whatever opportunity you had, and that was the opportunity we had. Of course, uh, the, the slick was uh, dead in the water the moment uh, the whole new wave thing came along and and uh, and changed everything and quite rightly so. So I was very fortunate that uh, that I was uh, asked by original um, bass player of the Sex Pistols, Glenn Matlock, uh, to come down to London uh, and and potentially join his band, uh, the Rich Kids. Uh, which is precisely what I did. I was very fortunate to give to be given that second opportunity, really. So I was I was kind of part of it, but mainly after the the, the initial explosion, the Rich Kids uh, came slightly afterwards and was slightly different to the straightforward three chord punk band. So and then you wound up in Visage shortly after that. Well, I bought a synthesizer. That was <laughs> that killed the rich kids. Uh, you know, I I was listening to a lot of music coming out of Europe at the time, um, you know, coming out of Germany mainly, uh, and all using this you know synthesizer and drum machines, and you know making these wonderful, very kind of white European dance music. It was it was very peculiarly European, and uh, and I wanted to be 
to be part of that. I wanted to, to use and integrate this new synthesizer thing, this new synthesis into traditional rock instruments. So I bought a synthesizer for the rich kids and half the band hated it <laughs> and ha half the band loved it. And the band, half the band who loved it went off and, and said, uh, you know, wouldn't it be great working with all our favourite musicians? Uh, and we put together a collective uh, called Visage uh, and in that collective was one of our favourite keyboard players, Billy Curry from Ultravox. So uh -huh. I, you know, I ended up through working on the Visage project. I ended up joining Ultravox. Huh? And a little, a little sidetrack through uh, Thin Lizzy. Well, there was that. I was I'd already joined Ultravox at the time. I was putting the finishing touches to the first uh, Visage album uh, with Fade to Grey on it, and uh, and I got a phone call from Philip Lynott, the singer from Thin Lizzy, and. Uh, he was in Arkansas or somewhere uh, with thin, what was left of Thin Lizzy because the guitarist had just uh, had just been ousted from the band, and uh, he said, "Look, we're out here opening up for Journey as special guests. Can you come out and finish the tour?" And uh, you know, I was never a kind of whiz kid guitarist, uh, the, the type that Lizzy would need, uh, but I'd never been to America, so. Uh, I was finishing in this studio with Visage. I had just joined Ultravox, although nobody was interested in hearing me talking about Ultravox. And Phil said, come out and do this, and then I'll take you to radio stations. And once I've talked about Thin Lizzy, you talk about Ultravox. <laughs> so I thought, this is, a, this is a marriage made in heaven, you know. So, uh, yeah, I, I found myself doing a short, a short stint with Thin Lizzy. And then, uh, of course, Vienna comes out, and uh, that's huge. Yeah, it was uh, it was just way beyond all expectations because uh, the, the the Vienna album that I the first album I did with Ultravox back in uh, I think we wrote it and recorded it in seventy nine eighty um, it was it was kind of relentless in its its desire to make something that was totally unpalatable you know <laughs> it went against the grain not only in America but in the in the UK as well. But then we found ourselves being weirdly uh, transported into that, that whole industry of the, the you know the, the, the large venue uh, because Vienna, a four and a half minute, five minute long, uh, you know, uh, atmospheric, sparse uh, ballad that speeds up in the middle with a viola solo in it of all <laughs> things uh, becomes hugely successful. It just tapped into people's imaginations and uh and that changed everything for us and it's still a uh, a staple of uh of, of new wave songs well it's weirdly it's been voted recently uh by uh the the, the big major kind of 80s uh channel uh, radio channel here as the song of the 1980s the record of the 1980s and that's that's quite something when you think of all the great stuff that was out in the 1980s so it's remembered very fondly and i think possibly because it was so radically different from everything else that was going on at the time and it was incredibly uh, adventurous uh, of of a band to record something like that and put that out as a single unedited you know much to our record company's dismay we just refused to chop it so it went out in its entirety and uh, we were right they were wrong <laughs> yeah um what's uh, funny about that is i didn't uh, realize this till i read the book um 
that's going to be coming out in Britain in September. It's already out here. Uh, Mad World. Uh, you were interviewed for it by uh, Jonathan Bernstein. Yep. And uh, yeah, and uh, I learned a lot of stuff I didn't know. I thought I'm, I'll, I'll know all this stuff, and I didn't realize, or maybe I'd forgotten, that the song that kept Vienna off the top spot was "What's the Matter You," the, that no yep. that novelty song. Here's a fun fact: uh, the guy that wrote that and performed it is from the hometown is is next to my hometown in Cleveland. Uh, he's from Mentor. I'm, I'm from Mentor. He's from Painesville, and the high school he went to, my uncle lived across the street from that very high school for years and years. Oh, no, you're kidding. I, I, how come I always thought the guy who did that, a guy called Joe Dolce, yeah. was, was Australian? No, he, he moved there. Ah, right. So, so you guys are to blame for this. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've been blaming <laughs> the Australians. The poor no. Antipodeans have been getting he it for is, years. Uh, oh, now I know. Right, okay. He's from, he's from Lake, <laughs> Lake County, Ohio, Painesville, Ohio, yeah. So, yeah, right. that's a uh, little, little fun fact, little coincidence there. Oh, and speaking of towns, I looked it up. My, uh, my friend is from... Uh, uh, let's see, Tullabadi near Stirling, if that rings a bell for you. Right, okay, yeah, Stirling's not far, yeah, Stirling's okay. not far at go. all from Glasgow, yeah. Okay, so, um, and you're originally from Glasgow then? I'm I'm originally from Glasgow, I mean, I, I moved away from there a long time ago, but I, I go back an awful lot, I still I still consider it home, it's a great city. Cool, yeah, I've, I've always wanted to, to visit that. I flew over England and uh, in the UK on the way to France when I was 12, but my, my mom said we couldn't afford to stop in Britain, so... My brother and I are very bummed, <laughs> but uh, one day I will make it there. Um, so after uh, Vienna, you know, Ultravox uh, takes off, and I think in this country, I think uh, you're maybe even more widely known for uh, Reap the Wild One, as always ends up on a lot of 80s compilations and stuff. It's my brother-in-law's, uh, one of his favorite songs of the 80s, because whenever I make him 80s discs, he always, oh, put Reap the Wild One on there. I'm like, oh, you got it. <laughs> well, it's funny, because, uh, you know, although Ultravox never achieved any major success in America, uh, college radio uh, played us to death. It was fantastic. Fantastic, you know, because they were again. College radio was really adventurous at a time when, uh, you know, major radio in America was still playing corporate rock to death. You know, it was all Sticks, Boston, and Forner, and you know, all of that stuff. Uh, so, so something like Ultravox to come along, um, you know, along with bands like you know, the police or Squeeze or, or whatever. Uh, we we were one of the first bands to do the. What was then known as uh, the uh, FBI circuit, which was the the the, uh, the manager of the police, uh, uh, Miles Copeland, uh, uh, had a, had a little circuit that he would bring various bands out, uh, new wave bands, and Ultravox did this little circuit and did really well. So, you know, thank goodness for uh, for College Radio. Yeah, it's strange too because um, one of my other favorite bands is OMD. And uh, I think you guys also fell into the same category. Even though MTV was playing a lot of videos from new wave artists in Europe, there were a couple of people, and I don't know if it was because the record companies weren't pushing you guys to MTV, but there were a couple of people that ended up in the blind spot that I didn't discover until I got to college, like OMD and Ultravox. I think the summer I was going to college, my buddy had bought Lament, and I was just completely hooked. And then I went back and plundered the back catalog and everything, and because you know, I was hooked. Well, it's, it's, it's lovely how music does that. When you find something, you find an artist that you think is a new artist, and uh, and then you can go back and find that, oh, hold on a second, these guys have been around for a while. And oh, yeah. There's a, there's a bit more material there you can dig into. But, yeah, you know, it, it was funny, uh, you know, MTV, when it, when it launched, uh, maybe a lot of people don't remember, but when it launched, 
American artists weren't really making uh, pop clips. They weren't making pop videos, uh, but the Brits were. So MTV, you could hardly move for for British artists uh, initially. Uh, yeah, but you're right. That, that I think a few blind spots happened there. But luckily, as I say, you know, college radio were really on the case, and uh, and they they helped us no end. Yeah, and when by the time Lament came out, it's, it's interesting. I've always been more of a, a keyboard guy than a guitar guy. I mean, I like guitars just fine. But the thing I really liked a lot about Lament was all the guitar work. Like, One Small Day is like my favorite song on that album. It's very guitar-y, though. It isn't really that keyboardy. Well, it's funny if you listen back to uh, you know what we used to do with Ultravox was <clears throat> it didn't really matter to us whether it was a synthesizer, a guitar, or a violin. Uh, you know, we we blended everything together. So even on the the Visage, the uh, sorry, the Vienna album, uh, you'll hear things like uh, "All Stood Still" and guitar yep. and synth just merge from one solo from a synthesizer or a guitar straight into guitar and you know it, they, they used to kind of intertwine all the time so people look at that album and they remember the four po-faced guys standing behind a bank of synthesizers yeah uh, but but you listen to the music and if you ever saw ultravoxes we played america many times back in those days if anyone uh, was uh, was there and saw ultravox perform You'll see that my guitarist first and foremost. Uh, it's what I it's what I do. I, I, I dabble with keyboards. Yeah. I make them. I make them do what I need to do with them. But I'm certainly not a keyboard player. But guitar is my first instrument. Yeah, I remember uh, the the first time I saw you live in any format was at Live Aid, and uh, you know, Hello World, and you hit the guitar, and I'm like, and I looked for a long time. I'm not really a fashion guy, but I I remember thinking to myself. I gotta get me one of those coats. <laughs> that is the coolest <laughs> thing. Was, uh, yeah, what a fashion faux pas that was. Uh, it, you know, it turns out that, of course, the day of Live Aid was the only sunny day that we yeah. had that year <laughs> in the UK. So I'm standing there in this ridiculous uh, coat that I just brought back from Los Angeles. Uh, you know, uh, trying try to look cool but sweltering. So uh, this is the uh, 30th anniversary of uh, Band Aid. It is, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, who would have thought? Uh, Thirty years on, uh, uh, you know, Bob and I are still trustees. Uh, we're still overseeing projects. We're still financing projects. Uh, you know, we're still doing it. It's just incredible. Is there going to be a thirtieth uh, anniversary reunion of any sort? I don't think so. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about it and a lot of speculation about it, but uh, I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, you know, there's no there's no concert planned or anything that I know of. There's no re-recording of the record. Um, you know, recently the cast of Glee, uh, the TV show, uh, did a uh, their their interpretation of "Do They Know It's Christmas?" Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, because I think I think it featured in one of the Christmas specials, and then they put out a CD with that track on it, and their version of that song alone raised quarter of a million dollars, which is oh, just wow. phenomenal. So, uh, so yeah, thanks to Glee, you know. So, so that song is out there, and and it it, it can be reworked and redone, you know, in many different ways. And that I think just happens naturally without us trying to manipulate a situation where you know we're trying to do a big anniversary thing yeah well it does rechart every year which is nice yeah well it gets played every year it's yeah. fabulous and it's always on you know every year there's a the greatest christmas records ever cd you know the, the compilations and that track's always in there which is great well i listen to radio one a lot and uh i, I the scott mill show particularly because he's closer to my age but um and he always says the only christmas songs the only songs made you see can stand playing are uh, wham's christmas song and do they know it's christmas 
<laughs> right, and one kept the other off. I seem to remember. I remember George Michael. Uh, I'm sure it was uh, last Christmas. I think he told his fans not to buy their record, but oh, to yeah. buy the Band Aid one instead. Which it was very magnanimous of him. Yeah, it, it's uh, yeah, and he uh, uh, he has he sings a great part on that too. And um, didn't you say that it, it came? I'm, I, I'm reading this correctly from the book, uh, or calling this correctly, is that you guys really didn't have the batting order settled until the very very end, and that's how Paul Young kind of got the leadoff spot. Well, yeah, I mean, I think originally we we were hoping David Bowie may have sung the opening uh, the opening line, but he couldn't do it, uh, and that was as far as we had thought it through. You know, you, you, if you look at the the making of video, I'm sure we're floundering trying to figure out who's going to sing what, and it it was a very stark realization that we hadn't written a long enough song to give everyone a complete line to sing, so we started kind of dividing the lines up there and then with a a lyric sheet in front of us a pen and just kind of drawing through who could sing what so we got each artist to sing a couple of lines and then uh, someone else to double up on those lines and then we would chop between them who had done the the more interesting section or whatever so it really was kind of throwing darts at a dartboard we hadn't really thought it through a hundred percent but i think that's part of the nature of the the track it was it was a very easily put together thing it was very quickly put together uh, it was all about you know raising the the awareness and the money and it wasn't really about making a, a completely polished article you know i think that the 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 event was bigger than the song um one thing i was going to ask i'm not asking to name names now but according to uh band-aid lore uh, I remember reading this in Melody Maker a lot. There were three people that were invited, three artists that were invited, who did not show up, and one of them later fessed up, and uh, that was Tom Bailey of Thompson Twins, who felt horrible about it. And uh, but uh, I, is that true? With her? And I'm, I don't want to know who the other two are, because um, it's it's fun to speculate who they might have been. My friends and I have speculated for years who the other were. But was, is that true? Or there were there some people that were invited and just didn't answer at all. I know Bowie's on the B side saying something, and Holly Johnson phoned in, and uh, Paul McCartney phoned in and had a message on the B side. But were there yeah, some I'm, missing people? I'm, I'm sure there probably were, but I, I don't remember that at all. I mean, if you again, if you look at the making of, I'm stuck behind the console for you know 24 hours. You know, I was uh, I was making the record, I was producing the thing, so I, I wasn't really uh, you know in in the thick of it as it were. Uh, you know, most people sang the line and then went and hung up with all all the other people that were there. Uh, so I, I kind of missed out on that. But if it was Tom and he has owned up, he's in for a fun time with me when we do this Retro <laughs> Futura tour together because he's got a month of me saying, hey, I told you. <laughs> I am 90% certain I read where he was an interview and they said, yeah, we, we didn't show up and they felt horrible about it. And that's why he told Bob that, hey, when, when Live Aid happens, even though we'll be in, uh, in the Western Hemisphere, we'll go to Philadelphia to perform. And, and they uh, did. Yeah, and they had a, they had a with Nile Rodgers and Madonna, and that was a great right. performance. I, I someone posted a somebody t- tweeted a photograph of that, and uh, and I thought, oh wow, oh that's yeah, just, yeah, that's quite incredible. Yeah. So with the Retro Futura tour, um, are you looking forward to it? I guess. Yeah, I I am. Yeah, you know, it's funny because uh, it's uh, 
again, uh, maybe I've got history of this. I, I hadn't really thought this through properly. You know, <laughs> I've just I've just released a brand new album, of course, and I won't be playing any of it on the tour because it's just the wrong environment to play it. Uh, the, the 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 you know the title says all retro futura, so it's 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 about the hits, it's about the old stuff, it's about going on there and and uh, and and packing as many you know recognizable tunes into a short space of time as you can. Um, so it's the event that's important rather than the individual. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And it's weird because I toured with Howard Jones in, in America in 1990 uh, when I had, uh, I think it was Answers to Nothing uh, yes. was the album that yeah. was out there. Yep. Dear God and, and whatever. So I toured with Howard then and it was an absolute ball. Howard's such a lovely guy. Uh, so yeah, I mean, what, what a great package we've got. You know, Howard, uh, Tom Bailey, uh, China Crisis from Liverpool, great yeah. band. Uh, um, uh, you know, Katrina from Katrina and the Waves. It's it's uh, it's a great lineup. So it's going to be fun. Yeah, I've actually seen all of you guys except for China Crisis. So I'm really looking forward to them. And I saw you with uh, Howard Jones back in uh, I think it was '89. I was working in radio in Pittsburgh, and uh, my buddy and I, I, w- I was in a band with he. Um, uh, I got in there because the radio station. We were gonna, we were supposed to go to the meet and greet, and we sat down there for like hours at the theater there, and uh, we met Howard's chef, who was an exact <laughs> double of Martin Fry of ABC. I'm like, that's Mar- we thought it, we thought it was Martin Fry. We're like, what the hell is he doing on this story? Why isn't he singing? And then it's, he's just uh, Howard's chef. Yeah, and uh, yeah, we never Mar- we never got back to go back and meet you guys, but uh, Martin Frying. That's what he was if he was a chef. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I, I remember uh, Howard had his own uh, his own vegetarian chef. That's right. Yep. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And it was funny because we were like we were we we're going to ask you and Howard all these technical questions because we were in the middle of recording demos and stuff. But then he leans across the table and goes, "What do you want to know?" And he was like pretty well versed in like all the uh, equipment you guys were using. So we actually found, we learned a lot. <laughs> This is amazing. Who knew? Yeah, multifunctional characters. I guess so. Yeah, and this kid—he didn't really have any interest in music per se as a career. He was interested in being a chef. He wanted to go back to London and be a, a big chef in a in a restaurant or a hotel there. Yeah. I hope he got there. Yeah. Um, so, uh, what are other plans you have after Retro Futura? I guess you'll be back to promoting your own album. I mean, your new album. I will. Uh, you know, again, as I said, uh, I hadn't really thought this through. I've put an album out uh, at a time when I'm incredibly busy. I, I've already committed to carrying on doing live stuff right through until the end of the year. So I, I don't have a slot to go out and do a dedicated tour just for uh, the, the Fragile album. Um, and maybe that's a good thing. So what I'm going to do is introduce uh, some of the Fragile album into uh, my acoustic sets and uh, and my, my band sets that I do here. Uh, and I'm, I'm planning, I'm already looking at dates uh, back in America oh, great. Uh, for January uh, next year, January 2015. Uh, so come in in January, do a couple of weeks and then come back in again a month or so later and uh, do various parts of America and try and do it in sections because when you have a, a family it's difficult to just say oh, I'm going to oh, take yeah. two months two months and go you know scratch the surface uh, so I, yeah I'm going to I'm going to do that and uh, I'm really looking forward to that because it's a, a different format I'll, I'll be mainly acoustic uh, probably just myself uh, performing old stuff and some new stuff from the Fragile album Cool. Well, hopefully you'll make it uh, to near us, uh, at least to Chicago, which is like five hours from us. A lot of people. Uh, I certainly hope so. Yeah, a lot of people don't make it to like Cincinnati, where we actually we have, we're actually driving to Cleveland to see the Retro Futura tour. Wow, that's a, that's a jaunt, isn't it? Uh, it's about four hours. 
Yeah, it's, it's nothing for you guys. You guys see, for us, if we drive for four hours in a straight line, we drive off the end of Scotland. I know. Well, that's the thing. It's, <laughs> that's how we're always so jealous because, you know, you can go, if someone's playing up in Manchester or vice versa, you live up in Liverpool and you want to go down to London to see a show, it's not that big a deal. And it's, well, it's not that big a deal. You guys are used to doing those long drives. I've, I've seen too many movies. I know what you yeah. guys are like. <laughs> well, there are these uh, kids that I used to do with this uh, uh, a podcast about uh, fantasy football, American football, but there were these kids in Birmingham that I found that were fans of American football, and they also did a video podcast. And they, you know, for them going down to London to see the annual American game was nothing. You just hop on a train, you go down there, you're there. You have to worry about a car or anything. That's you know, that's really nice. It's yeah, it's it's a small country, but we're well connected. Yes, yes, indeed. Well, cool. Um, well, we're really looking forward to uh, to seeing you up in Cleveland for the Retro Futura tour. And uh, we'll we'll post all the dates for everybody listening, you know, around the world and uh, across America and North America. On this, they can find the Retro Futura tour as well. Uh, again, looking really looking forward to this. Anxious to hear all those uh, Midjour and Ultravox hits. And uh, I got I was trying to think while we we're sitting here what my favorite Ultravox song is. And just when I think I have one, I think well then no what about? But I guess I've got to go with still with one small day. And my favorite solo song here, I think, is that certain smile. Oh right! Oh, interesting choice. Yeah, interesting choice. Because yeah. I know I'm, okay. if I was came out, it hit number one over there, and I'm like, and I was surprised that uh, uh, that smiling face only got to like 28, which was yeah, know. just it didn't it just didn't grab people for whatever hmm. reason. Uh, you know, you cannot predict what people will like. You just make something that you think is interesting, yeah. put it out there, and uh, and then it's it's got to go through all the machinery, and sometimes it's successful, and sometimes it's not. So yeah, and then what something else might be in the chart too that you know you just you just can't predict. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we'll play out of the interview with, with that tune, actually, when I do this in, in post-production. I'll, uh, we'll give a little blast of that certain smile and encourage everyone to go see Midjour and the Retro Future Tour. And again, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. All right. Thanks, Midjour. Cheers. No bye. problem at all. all thanks, right. Patrick. Bye. Okay. Bye. That's what you need tonight. We have the encore presentation of episode 161 with Midjour of Ultravox fame. Uh, he is still touring, and hopefully he'll be coming back to North America post-pandemic. Now we are up to the song of the week. It's from a very important band here on PF's Tape Recorder. They were contestants in PF's third favorite band, question mark. It's the Connells from North Carolina. They have a new album coming out in September, I believe late September. It's called Stedman's Wake. And they have a brand new single from that album. And I went out and bought it uh, immediately. And the song is called Really Great. Uh, it is really great. I'm not sure if it's really, really great. I know if it's Stone Cold Yesterday great, but it's growing on me very quickly. It has got all the elements of a great Connell song. And, uh, well, I'm going to give you a little blast of it right here to take us out of this episode. Here are the Connells with Really Great, available wherever you get music. I actually bought it to help the band. Gave them my dollar twenty i I'll buy the whole album in September. Uh, if you stream it, they don't make as much money. So consider buying it and then streaming it. Anyway, Really Great, the Connells. PF Tape Recorder, so long, and thanks for listening. Thank you.